um, per se I'm not an obesity researcher per se, I'm, my major research interest is in chronic kidney disease, but of course then that uh, major manifestation is diabetic nephropathy, so our specific interest is in diabetic kidney disease, and the major burden of type 2 diabetic kidney disease is occurring in an obese population with the phenomenon of, of diabetes. So um, our, our basic investigations, uh, we deploy animal models of obesity, uh, which uh, course with um, kidney disease, specific diabetic kidney disease, and our major focus at the moment is looking at bariatric surgical interventions as a means of um, interrupting the uh, natural history and progression of diabetic kidney disease. So I have an interest in animal models of obesity from that applied perspective. Um, but I want to just go back, you know, go back a layer uh, with this talk and, you know, in relation to what Stanley was mentioning there about the various models of obesity and how does the use of animals fit into our thoughts about obesity as a phenomenon and as a, 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 an epidemic, we might say. And certainly if we look at the, the, um, the global rates of obesity uh, and look at the, the distribution worldwide, we can see that the, the, the um, obesity epidemic in humans would seem not to be something that would be able to be easily modelled within uh, an animal model because <coughs> clearly the distribution points to a number of other factors and other obesity models uh, in relation to ethnicity, culture, uh, socio-economic status, etc. But I want to go on to try and drill out in the talk what is it I want in the meta-model of obesity that we can actually uh, examine uh, in, in animal models, specifically in rodent models. And I also want to think a little bit about the evolution of rodent models uh, has went down a line of investigation which in some ways has been um, coinc uh, coincidental with you know, spontaneous mutations in mice and particular genes which have then led the field to focus on, on that uh, pathway. So we're going to talk about leptin in that respect. And in, in some ways, we know leptin is not the be-all and end-all in obesity, and certainly um, only in the minority of patients with congenital leptin deficiency is it really effective uh, as a monotherapy. But just the, 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 the story of animal models of obesity very much begins with uh, the, the discovery of um, leptin uh, deficient mice, and so that's kind of governed in a normal science type development, uh, the way that the field has, has progressed. So there's a lot of work been done on that. Um, I titled my talk, um, uh, you know, uh, a reductionist approach to a complex human trait. But for us now, um, if we compare then the Oxford English Dictionary uh, a definition of obesity, it's more of a phenotypic description. That's to say that you know it, it's descriptive of a condition of being extremely far overweight, stoutness, corpulence, but <clears throat> as of 2013, um, the American Medical Association is classifying obesity as a disease, so it's more than a trait, or at least it's a trait that has uh, pathological uh, repercussions. Um, so are we considered, are we now moving to a, a model of, of obesity where we think not of it purely as a trait, but also as a disease. And of course, the uh, um, American Medical Association are basing that on the, the, um, the classification system that we use in considering obesity, the, the BMI index. Um, and we know actually that BMI is not a good measure of the morbidity of obesity. Um, there is another scale called the Edmonton uh, Obesity Staging System, which uh, as um, is a more recent uh, development, and rather than uh, doing a simple classification of height versus body weight, this classifies uh, the severity of obesity based on the morbidity that it's entail that entails, um, and it's a five-point scale from no apparent risk factors through to subclinical risk factors. The presence of obesity-related chronic disease, for example, um, diabetes hypertension and some of the 
the risk factors which lead into my primary interest in diabetic kidney disease, um, that becoming manifest uh, potentially as end organ damage. Um, and we know that a lot of diabetics die uh, of cardiovascular disease before uh, kidney disease has the chance to progress to end stage. Um, but this five, this five um, tier scale, the obese um, staging system, is actually a better way of looking at the repercussions of obesity, um, at least when we look at the NHANES uh, data and do a comparison between um, classifying or looking at um, Kaplan-Meier curves for uh, um, cut up by uh, BMI class or cut up by obesity staging system grade. So we see here that the, um, the uh, survival curves for um, the BMI indices uh, do not differentiate as well as when we uh, classify obesity according to its severity. And we see then this, this um, uh, what would be classified as stage three um, on the EOSS is associated with a, a really significant uh, impact on mortality. So the reclassification of obesity as a disease in those patients for whom the obesity becomes morbid in terms of complications uh, is certainly an important consideration. And just to go back to the, the example of diabetic kidney disease, we know that proportion uh, of obese uh, patients with obesity will um, have to be diabetic, but they go on to be, you know, represent the, the large majority of diabetic patients. And within that, maybe about 40% um, of those diabetic patients go on to develop this progressive diabetic kidney disease. And that has associated <coughs> cardiovascular mortality, um, which we can see here, for example, against a baseline of a 7% standardized 10-year cumulative mortality risk. If you are diabetic with kidney disease, you have an additional 47% increase in your standardized mortality risk. Um, so the complications of obesity, obese morbidity is a serious issue. Um, and it per se, uh, aside even from the, the, the diabetic setting, obesity is a risk factor for end-stage renal disease per se, and this has been borne out in a number of um, studies, for example, this Israeli one, which shows that there's uh, a very elevated hazard ratio for diabetic kidney disease uh, in obesity, but there's also a very significant hazard uh, increase in hazard ratio um, for non-diabetic kidney disease. Now, I think this is one of the points where I can say there is crosstalk between the models and the way we think about things and some of the other models of obesity. So in, the, in terms of uh, kidney failure, we know that one of the things that will uh, progress it is if the insult is happening on top of a reduced renal reserve. Okay? So that could happen if you have one kidney out, so if you only have one kidney left, you now have 50% of the functional renal mass. But going back further in time, developmentally it has been shown now that some of these aspect, uh, issues of undernutrition and overnutrition which are related then to these uh, changes in uh, reduced, reduced birth weight. There's also uh, a correlation with reduced nephron dosage uh, at birth. So um, if we say, if we believe in the sort of a transgenerational uh, transmission of obesity, not only could obesity be transmitted transgenerationally, but the reserve in some of the organs to be able to cope with the, uh, the complications of obesity can be reduced. And that's something that's becoming uh, apparent because there's a new entity in what well, a relatively new entity in renal disease called obesity-related glomerulopathy. And the pattern of damage seems to be consistent with um, the metabolic, um, the, the influence of the metabolic milieu on a reduced number of uh, nephrons. 
So anyway, we'll just step back from considering diabetic kidney disease just now because what I want to think about then is if, if obesity um, is now being classified as a disease, just from my own thoughts on it, is obesity the disease or is obesity like a symptom or a, a, you know, a phenotype uh, associated with an underlying disorder? So is it the principal presenting feature of a disorder of energy homeostasis? And that's an angle to take on it because when we're talking about animal models because most of the animal models are focused on uh, disruptions in energy homeostasis. Now, we know that some of the animal models um, are defined or their, 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 their genesis comes from changes in single genes, but we know that animal models also can have a more um, rounded uh, set of risk factors which encompasses environmental factors um, such as diet and uh, exercise. So I want to think about obesity then as a disorder of energy homeostasis defined by a multifactorial influence of environmental and genetic factors which is frequently but not ubiquitously associated with major organic disease, significant morbidity and mortality. And this definition defines the domains, perhaps, some of the domains in which animal studies can be useful. So if we think of the primary phenomenon uh, being disrupted energy homeostasis, then we have to take a step back from that and say, well, what could cause disrupted energy homeostasis? What is the feed forward into the development of this um, metabolic phenotype? And that's where we can see uh, that um, the meta-consideration meta of obesity includes then a number of factors, some of which may be um, you know, some of which may be able to be modelled in animals and some which may not be able to be modelled in animals. But it's the synergism between these factors leading to disrupted energy homeostasis with potential positive feedback on this, um, on some of the predisposing factors here that we think, or I think, uh, is involved in developing the obese phenotype and morbidity as a sequelae of this. So, then, where can we use animal models? Um, so, if we think about trying to uh, elucidate the uh, causative agents in obesity. Um, we can sort of appeal to whether we can look for causative agents as per the Bradford Hill criteria, um, looking at strength association between factors, the consistency of factors in terms of affected uh, people and places and time, um, specificity, temporality, cause, effect, um, temporal um, relationships. Um, that there be a biological gradient in terms of the obesogenic environment, for example, that is uh, the, the gradation of exposure to it and duration of exposure to it, something like pack years with cigarettes. Um, that, that we have mechanisms which can uh, decipher how the risk factors then become translated into uh, maladaptive physiological responses, and that we show coherence between agent mechanism and incidence. And obviously then the animal models allow for, uh, you know, to try and build in some of these um, criteria and look for an, an analogous model in animals. So not all of these can be used, but I think animal models allow us to look at genetic and molecular drivers of uh, obesity developmental stage modifiers, dietary influences, which in some way is linked to development stage modifiers. And we can look at these um, influences individually and in combination. And if these are the domains in which we can operate, there are questions in relation to strength, temporality, gradient, plausibility, coherence, experiment, and analogy, which can be addressed uh, in terms of these three elements. And study of obesity and animal models along these lines can be done, it can be commensurate with findings from other models. 
So refer back to the issue of microvascular complications potentially having um, you know, the relative risk of them having some basis in the fetal environment, for example, nephron endowment, and then risk and severity of obesity-related comorbidity. So just moving uh, on with this, the talk then, I think that the animal models are very much focused around this energy homeostasis or dysregulation of energy homeostasis model of obesity, um, all uh, perspective of the etiology of that. So I want to um, review just a couple of concepts on the neurobiology of ingestive behaviour and energy homeostasis which underpin the basis for most of the animal models and then sort of give an overview of the most common models of obesity and just highlighting that a lot, most of them are leptin centric and then maybe at the end or afterwards we could talk about the extent to which rodent models may be informative vis-a-vis humans and how this can be optimised. So the energy homeostasis system uh, is, is a homeostatic principle so it's based on the, the, um, the idea that the milieu interior should always be uh, geared towards uh, maintaining constancy. Um, so this, according to this theory we would say that the energy stores of the body should have a kind of a set point and we will adjust behaviour and energy ingestion and energy expenditure in order to sustain a particular set point of, uh, of um, energy balance and energy reserve and obviously a major input into that is how much calorific content uh, is coming in so that is uh, exquisitely monitored um, both via the activity of short-term signals, short-term afferent signals from the digestive system and long-term afferent signals from the uh, energy stores and adipose tissue. And cooperation between short and long-term signals fine-tunes alterations in intake driven by adjusted sensitivity of hunger, so that is um, sensation of wanting to eat, how quickly that is, uh, we reach satiety and how rewarding we find food. Um, and these uh, changes in these then allow dynamic regulation of the body weight which is a proxy for the energy stores um, to be achieved in the normal setting. So we would expect that there could be some dysregulation in these underpinning the sort of biological um, er uh, dysregulation of energy homeostasis model of obesity. So satiety signals, short-term signals tend to be um, hormonal and neural uh, coming from the various uh, coming from various lengths along the gastrointestinal tract and the liver and they're often peptide hormone mediated, for example, cholecystokinin or GLP-1. GLP-1 um, is um, used as an anti-diabetogenic uh, or oral anti-diabetic agent, but it's also, um, there, you know, it, it, it may be coming on stream as a anti-obesity drug as well. Um, leptin then is, uh, a long-term fat store which signals to the same areas and really one of the things that leptin does importantly as does insulin is regulate how sensitive the brain is to these satiety signals and how sensitive the reward uh, systems are in the brain to um, afferent signals. So the sources of the afferent signals then are mainly the gastrointestinal tract we pick out leptin as a long-term regulator and some of these short-term uh, regulators being um, peptide in nature and released either uh, during fasting or during the fed phase and having some input into actually um, the digestive and post-absorptive phase in terms of nutrient handling but also in uh, informing or 
decision making on meal termination and meal initiation. Um, most of the animal models for which the basis of action is predetermined or has been elucidated are centred on something to do with these peripheral signals, either a loss of the peripheral signal or impairment of its central processing. Um, and obviously the central processing of a lot of these signals um, centres then on the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus which uh, has populations of neurons which drive um, decreases in food intake and increases of energy expenditure. So they're kind of anorexigenic centres and then we have parexigenic centres which drive uh, food-seeking behaviour, decrease in energy expenditure, etc. And on this side, these, these neurons tend to increase satiation and decrease the uh, reward-related value of food, and these ones do the opposite. So hunger and satiety signal uh, modulation is a function of the energy stores because the adiposity negatives feedback signal is mainly leptin, so the more uh, white adipose tissue you have, the more uh, capacity to, to generate leptin, and as that accumulates, it acts as a long-term signal back onto the arcuate nucleus, um, whereby it activates a set of neurons called the POMC neurons, and it tends to inhibit the agouti-related uh, peptide hormones. And these hormones, via various excitatory and inhibitory pathways can influence then the hindbrain in the nucleus uh, tractus solitaris where uh, satiety is, um, is governed. So essentially the model is that after eating, for example, there's an elevation of this hormone cholecystokinin which is involved in pancreatic secretion but also is involved here as a satiety signal and how potent it is as a satiety signal is positively regulated by leptin because it, you know you get better satiety when you have a big energy store and therefore uh, leptin then reinforces the CCK signal and when you have less leptin uh, it becomes a weaker signal so that's how we can fine tune responses. Sort of. i just ask uh, one, one ignorant question but uh, what role does uh, low blood glucose having central uh, yeah. uh, signaling of satiety. Satiety, yeah. There is, there is um, so hypoglycemic hyperphagia uh, would be one of the things so it, it drives the uh, it, it would drive the um, the uh, agouti-related peptide system and decrease satiety, but so there is the phenomenon of like hypoglycemic hyperphagia in uh, you know or very poorly controlled diabetes, and that you know is the basis for that. So they they would positively or they would negatively input on the uh, satiety signals, and then there's another area we'll look at here that are the reward systems, uh, which would be positively regulated. So. The long-term store, we're saying leptin, I'm going to focus on this because we're going to talk about that, some of the animal models. In the energy deplete state, leptin is then going to promote uh, or the sensitivity of the satiety centre to peripheral satiety signals which are delivered um, over the short term in response to feeding. And we can think of a reduction in energy stores reduced leptin and hence less satiety. But also we could think if leptin can't work properly and we have the phenomenon of leptin resistance, then you have a mismatch between what the actual fast stores are and what the centres think there is if the signal cannot be received correctly. So that's in terms of satiety and hunger, but obviously then there's a, a, the food reward uh, uh, system, um, system. So the motivation T is driven in part by its hedonic value, and this has a you know a hardwired neural basis. In so much as um, there is a in the uh, striatum here, um, the ventral tegmental area uh, provides feed forward um, 
dopamine-based signals to the nucleus of humans, um, which uh, is involved, I'm not sure exactly of the details, but that's the reward system. Um, so this, the activity through the reward system can be uh, directly and indirectly modulated by the uh, feeding centres here in the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus and in the lateral hypothalamus. And again, we think leptin um, dampens the loop between food intake and reward, and ghrelin, which is released by the stomach during fasting, enhances the reward value of food. So some people think this. Uh, there's some theories that think that possibly that some of the receptive bariatric surgeries re, uh, remove the major source of ghrelin and so remove one of the major orexigenic and food reward signals. Uh, conversely, other people believe that um, the rerouting of the gut in bariatric surgery causes more release of satiety signals like GLP-1, which then dampen, uh, which increase satiety and dampen um, indirectly the, uh, the uh, reward centres. So two peripheral hormones, uh, one height, ghrelin heightens reward, leptin moderates it. Okay, so leptin is moderating, um, it's increasing satiety, moderating reward, and if there's less reward, there's less motivation. That's the, the, the model. So, Another concept just that can be looked at in animal models is that we have a kind of, that each of us de defends a particular body weight and that's quite individualised, so someone may defend a body weight of this, and when we say body weight, I'm speaking proxy or stored energy, try to defend a body weight of this, but allow uh, their body weight to drift quite markedly away from that and it doesn't have to be symmetrical either side of the set point before compensatory actions happen which try to restore the set point. Someone could have a higher set point and a, a, a less broad range, so they will, they will correct um, within a, a smaller dynamic range. And it's really uh, the negative and positive feedback signals between the short-term signals and the long-term uh, adipose store signals, how they communicate with each other, which determines, uh, is believed to determine the set point and the uh, breadth of the set point. Um, and these things also then, we can't forget that they're the same systems, leptin uh, and insulin, they, they are also driving um, changes in the basal metabolic rate, for example, uh, through um, Access to the, the thyroid. So, this body weight energy reserve defense, we think maybe in resist, when we have resistance to some of these signals, we can actually start to change up the weight or um, the body weight that we defend. Conversely, actually, then after bariatric surgery, possibly we can start to defend a lower weight because there's the increased satiety hormone, so we've changed the set point. And that's beneficial in obesity surgery, but we also are doing some studies just now in patients with post-esophageal cancer. They have a very similar reconstruction to a gastric bypass, and they become very malnutritioned and seem to experience the same symptoms as uh, bariatric patients. They have early satiety, they have the same exaggerated release of hormones, but it's the flip side of the coin, it's the same reconstruction having a negative repercussion in cancer versus the positive repercussion in obesity. So that's, you know, the, the set point is something we defend, but probably it can be, uh, you can override that, certainly in humans, so you, you can have increases in gastric accommodation, stomach can increase in size, which inhibits or extends the range before the stomach starts to send a mechanical satiety signal. We can think that all of these leptin signals into the brain, there's the whole phenomenon of central leptin resistance, which is manifest in animal models as well, um, which really equates to the central sensors underestimating the energy reserve 
and failing then to make the correct compensation. And some of the satiety hormones with increased weight, the, the, the post-meal surge of uh, satiety hormones is dampened in obese patients. So uh, these things leading to hunger, hyperphagia, weight gain and reduced energy expenditure all uh, generate a sort of a natural history that would be credible to investigate in animal models and use as an analogy uh, to a subset of the features which contribute to human obesity. So the desirable features of an animal model would be that it would have a high calorie food preference and most rodents just do prefer high calorie uh, intake but they self-correct after a period of time once they've built the adipose stores um, and you get more of the long-term leptin signal etc. So there's a, an initial hyperphagia and then they correct unless it's a susceptible animal. Um, they should show primary and refeeding hyperphagia so they should eat more and if you, if you uh, restrict food from them they should overeat more than they need because that's kind of uh, something that we would we would point to uh, being illustrative of a defective gut brain satiety axis and they should be able to have caught a high and upwardly drifting body weight set point which will happen even if they're not in a completely sedentary state. So that's an aspiration because rats and mice live in cages, they have, they have very little exercise, but ideally I would say a desirable feature would be that you would be able to develop obesity with some, um, without the, the, the extent of sedentary lifestyle that the rodents experience. Um, the, the body weight should be increased um, with reduced energy expenditure in spite of some more activity and the model if it's to be very useful should be able to be left shiftable with intervention i.e. you can do an intervention whether it be surgical or medical which shifts the set point to the left um, and so towards more fat masses. So that's three. I think that they should also um, ideally have resistance to rather than absence of peripheral signals and peripheral signal responsivity, but we'll see that a lot of the animal models are premised upon genetic deletion of peripheral signals or genetic deletion of the receptors which sense peripheral signals. And they only reflect a very small percentage of human obesity, uh, although they're mechanistically very useful for describing the, uh, the, the, the energy homeostasis system. It would be preferable if animals were primed for obesity rather than they, they were born and became obese irrespective of environment or you know um, that type of thing. So they should be primed for obesity like is the case with some models where they die in just obese rat. Um, they should have at least at the beginning have the absence of secondary hyperphasia so if the animals uh, are born and, and are very um, diabetic straight away for example, they will overeat but they're only overeating to, um, to recoup the energy loss that, that they're experiencing by uh, losing calories in the urine for example when they exceed, when their hyperglycemia is, is on a level which exceeds the threshold at which the kidney can take what goes back. Um, so we don't want secondary hyperphasia because that's probably not what's happening in, in obesity and it should have uh, a good model would have the evolution of some obese morbidities so there's kind of seven things I think that would be good to have in, in rodent models and we just have to bear in mind there are a number of pertinent differences to consider the practicalities of working with rodents in terms of their nocturnal versus diurnal um, you know lifestyle. The, this issue of them grazing versus at least societally humans are not grazers but whether that's physiologically hardwired is another question. Um, rodents obviously have a high surface area to volume ratio like you know we think about in, in neonates and so uh, they have they exhibit increased energy expenditure and 
have a rel potentially could have a relative resistance to obesity in some settings. And they do have quite a sedentary lifestyle, and either that's a useful just consequence of the way that they're housed, or it's excessive. And there's are some things that I always think about. The types of animal models that are used can be classified as either surgical, uh, genetic, or what I would call next generation. And I want to just take a minute to try and explain a couple of technologies that are used. Um, so obviously surgical models were able to ablate some of the sensors we've talked about, the, the um, arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus, for example. The genetic models would, uh, well, not necessarily, but are, uh, because of the way things evolved, rather focused on leptin and, uh, and uh, signaling downstream from leptin. Okay, and some of them are monogenic, i.e. it's one um, gene that's knocked out, which may have happened via a spontaneous mutation, which was subsequently identified, or else there's targeted uh, mutations, and they can even be targeted then to specific neuronal populations. Uh, then you can also overexpress genes in mice, and this is all. These types of things tend to be uh, in mice, where you're engineering changes in terms of knockout, whereas where you're putting in new genes can be mice or rats. Um, the next, these technologies, dread and optogenetics, will come on to. Uh, they're just ways of really finely changing the uh, expression of gene products in particular. Uh, neuronal populations. And then probably what are very interesting for their potential to parallel human obesity rather than just explain the mechanisms of energy homeostasis are polygenic uh, rat models which show diet, so they're sensitive to diet and they also can have some transgenerational uh, transmission of the phenotype. So an important thing to consider in the, uh, the, 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 the timeline of um, animal models is the issue of the uh, development of the op-op mouse. So the op-op mouse was a spontaneous mutant, um, the genetic origin of which was not known, but it was an obese mouse um, discovered in around the 50s. And then in the mid-60s, another, another obese strain was found, which was also diabetic, and it was called DBDB. <coughs> And there were a series of uh, elegant experiments done with these mice that identified that the ob-ob mouse were, was missing a circulating factor and the db-db mouse was missing the receptor for said circulating factor. So if you took an ob-ob mouse and you did this parabiosis, which is just kind of a suturing of the skin until there is, um, there is um, merging of the vascular, the vascular systems. Um, the animals can survive for some time, but what happens is if you put a normal mouse here along with an ob ob mouse, um, the, ob, um, the ob ob mouse reduces its food intake, it becomes normal insulinemic and it reduces its blood sugar because it had been an insulin resistant. And this is quite interesting because it suggests that the ob mouse is gaining something from the the uh, normal mouse. If you put two normal mice together, they both are happy enough. If you, um, on the other hand, take a DBDB mouse and you, you know, put it in a parabiosis with a normal mouse, the DBDB mouse continues to uh, increase its body weight and adipose tissue mass, but the lean animal actually reduces its food intake reduces its insulin, um, you know, it basically dies by starvation. And this is because this DBDB mouse does not have the receptor for the circulating factor in the mice. So because it doesn't have the receptor for it, it overproduces the ligand for the receptor. So it overproduces leptin. So these are hyperleptinemic because they don't have the leptin receptor. And that hyperleptin emic signal makes this mouse think that it has got a very big positive energy balance because it does have the receptor and so it just starves itself to death in the parabiotic experiment. If you put a DB, DB mouse which lacks the leptin receptor 
along with an OV-OV mouse which has the receptor but lacks the ligand, what you see is that the diabetic mouse continues to um, continues to sort of grow in its um, obesity, but the OV-OV mouse, similar to the normal mouse, also dies by starvation because it now has the ligand from the uh, from the uh, DBDB mouse. Okay. So these kind of these were spontaneous mutations, and then these elegant experiments were done by a keen mind and identified the DBDB mouse having a knockout of the leptin receptor, and the all mouse lacking leptin to act at the receptor. And laterally, then they mapped to the chromosomes where these uh, genetic changes were found, and then discovered what was the corresponding proteins. And this led to a kind of a leptin-centric view or neurobiology of ingestive behaviour. And, you know, in, I, I'm going to skip through them now because I'm as usual taking too long. The uh, leptin signalling has very much been elucidated as to how it works. And there are intracellularly a number of steps in the activity of leptin signalling, which actually we'll see later become uh, important for resistance to leptin. Now, there, in terms of rodents and grass and mice, there are many uh, models which are all based around the leptin system. So we have leptin receptor deficiency in the rat, of which there are four types uh, of strains, and these are analogous to the uh, leptin receptor deficiency in mice, which we just saw in the DBDB mouse. We also have the all mouse, which lacks leptin um, ligand, and then uh, we also in mice have selective deletion of the leptin receptor from the POMC neurons, which are anorexigenic ones, from some inos neurons in the hypothalamus and from some inhibitory neurons in the hypothalamus. Going just back, there's also what we see here on the intracellular signaling pathway of leptin, there's this transcription factor called STAT3, and there are mice which have been genetically engineered to not have STAT3, so they can't respond to leptin. And then we have leptin effector deficient mice, because we know leptin usually acts by producing the uh, stimulatory hormone and acting at certain great uh, classes of receptors which can be knocked out on the mouse to produce the obese phenotype. So the odd mouse then, we've talked about how it was um, uh, developed. So this is very, very uh, widely used uh, by researchers and you can treat it with leptin and other uh, drugs to reduce the uh, phenotype. The DBDB mouse is the leptin receptor deficient mouse. Uh, it shows morbid obesity but is extensively used because it develops um, type 2 diabetes. It's not just insulin resistant but actually there's a loss of the uh, endocrine pancreas. I'll just tell you one of these uh, techniques that I referred to before, optogenics. So this is, a, this is a means by which in mice you can target a, the, um, you can genetically engineer into certain neurons in the, uh, the areas involved with whatever, but in this case involved with the reward centres you can put in ion channels by genetic engineering and these ion channels are actually um, related to the rhodopsin channels in the, the work in the eye so they're light sensitive or they're, you know, they're wavelength sensitive and so if you can make neurons in these areas have um, responsivity to laser stimulation what happens is that when you stimulate with lasers, you depolarize these neurons and they fire. So, if we can do that targeted uh, to neurons which normally produce or normally are involved uh, in the leptin responses, we can look at some of the uh, details of preference and reward. So, if we take all bob mice which lack the circulating factor and we then put in these constructs to activate. Uh, dopaminergic neurons in the region of the brain involved with reward and then give leptin on top of that we can determine the hedonic value of certain substances and how leptin uh, interferes with that so if we give mice a low dose of leptin 
and we give them a choice of either sucrose, or sorry, we give them a choice of water. Uh, sorry, if we take mice and we either do or do not, so minus and plus we do or do not put in the construct which will give the dopaminergic response to the laser, and then we let the uh, the mice choose between water with um, uh, a laser uh, stimulus associated to it or water without a laser stimulus associated with it, then the mice will prefer the water which gives them the, the buzz. Okay? Um, and however, uh, in both cases they will still prefer to take sucrose than water. So they still prefer sucrose because it has taste and post-ingestive rewards. They still prefer that to just taking the reward. So they'll have the sucrose without the, the, the buzz from the, the signal, uh, rather than have, um, they, they prefer sucrose. Um, what happens is that when you give a higher dose of leptin, um, they actually can, they can't avail of the hedonic um, response to sucrose. The leptin suppresses this so they now, although they still prefer, when it's a water challenge, they still prefer water that gives the stimulus. When we go to sucrose versus sucralose, from which they shouldn't get the same ingestive uh, hit, whereas um, without leptin, they prefer to take sucrose. When leptin is there in sufficient presence to block the response to sucrose, they go back to taking the laser. So, uh, they, this suggests that um, leptin blocks the hedonic value of sucrose, um, and this can be achieved with these kind of genetic engineering approaches. Um, as uh, there's another one there, Dread, which I don't think we'll go into just now uh, for time purposes. This a similar system to be able to target with genetic engineering particular uh, neural um, populations to look at the effects of leptin. So one of the mice, one of the animals that I use uh, in studies of um, diabetic kidney disease and the impact of bariatric surgery is the Zucker diabetic fatty rat, and this is like the rat equivalent of the DPTD mouse. Um, and we'll see they are hyperphagic and hyperinsulinemic and hyperleptinemic at an early age, but they develop a profound diabetes, which means that they don't continue to gain weight because they lose weight because of the severe diabetes. But they're a useful model for studying um, diabetic kidney disease with the caveat that because they lack leptin signaling, one of the drawbacks in a chronic disease is that leptin's involved in the immune system. Leptin activates the sympathetic nervous system, which is involved in cardiovascular um, um, pathology. And so you lose all of that when you don't have the leptin receptor. What is more promising is to look at diet uh, diet-induced models in which we have leptin resistance as opposed to ablation of leptin. Um, and we know that leptin resistance can occur at the leptin receptor through the activities of a number of negative regulators of the leptin receptor. And these seem to be stimulated by high-fat diets. So in uh, rats and mice we can use kind of these uh, high-fat or high-calorific diets. There's two main ones, the cafeteria diet, which is partly compensated, and then the high-fat diet, which is really a high-fat stimulus and is very good at inducing hyperleptinemia and leptin resistance. People start to use high-sucrose diets now as well, but they don't seem to actually cause leptin resistance or um, weight gain, although they, they, they are hyperphagic only. So we have diet-induced obese rats, which are a type of a rat called a sprawled dolly rat, which over generations were bred out to uh, have a, a subset which were sensitive to high fat in the diet and that were resistant to it. And you can compare then that the, the, the sensitive uh, animals when given a high fat diet overeat, they gain they have a bigger uh, weight gain trajectory and they fail to, uh, although all animals overeat a high fat diet initially, they fail to, these black bars here, they fail to downregulate it as the adipose stores uh, replenish. But they don't have any mutation per se in the leptin system, so they do have, however, leptin resistance. 
So we can see some of these signals here which actually block the actions of leptin. We can actually measure how much of these there is uh, in, in the cells by various molecular techniques. So here we can see a negative regulator of leptin signaling called SOX3, which is increased in diet-induced obesity animals, um, for example. This model as well is interesting because there's transgenerational obesity and leptin resistance. So if you feed pregnant uh, rats um, high-fat diet during weight gestation and during lactation, the offspring then, when they are weaned, are just kept on normal foods for 12 weeks. And if you return them to high-fat diet for four weeks, the diet just obese rats, because they've been selected for the phenotype, gain more weight but those from whom their mothers were exposed to high fat during the uh, during um, gestation and lactation have an even higher growth curve, and we think that this shows a potentiation of lactose resistance transgenerationally. And how could that be determined? Well, potentially, something that's been noticed is that if you restrict the litter size in rodents, say from 12 to 3 it means that those three pups have four times as much food from their mother to an extent and there will be some stimulus for um, lactation depending on the number of pups but basically the, the pups can overeat and what has been shown is that this overeating then is associated with um, what we call epigenetic silencing of some of the uh, genes involved in the leptin pathway so leptin by its receptor increases um, the, the expression of what we call the pro-opio-melanocortin precursor and that gives rise to the anorexogenic uh, hormones and actually the ability of that to be uh, that action the, the uh, perinatal over nutrition actually just switches off that system so we think that maybe the transgenerational thing is not based on gene mutations but on gene silencing so I'll just stop there. This is what I'm actually working on aside from the uh, gastric bypass, apart from the diabetic kidney disease. Energy expenditure, satiety, food reward, food preference, diabetes and diabetic complications in this, the ruin why gastric bypass.